0: All right, brothers and sisters, welcome again to another episode of the BHP, the Bible History Project. We're going to study Revelation chapter 17. It's hard to believe we're almost at that point in our study of the book of Revelation where we are towards the conclusion because Revelation only has 22 chapters. So in a matter of months, we're going to be finishing our study in the book of Revelation. So today we're going to look at Revelation chapter 17. But before we do so, Just a quick recap, we know the book of Revelation presents us with a timeline or sequence of events beginning with Yahusha's message to seven local congregations in Asia Minor, the seven assemblies. And then we have the seven seals, and then following that, the seven trumpets, which we discussed previously in many of our episodes of the BHP. And then last week, we talked about the seven bowls of wrath. And so these are judgments of Yahuwah. And its purpose and intent, first and foremost, was to target the judgment against the people who worship the beast, the beast, it's himself, and also the Antichrist and those who work with them. So we have the bold judgments or the wrath of Yahuwah, and its intent, another intended purpose is to eradicate uh, the world, the earth of evil, so that Yahuwah can install his kingdom through the leadership of his son, Yahusha HaMashiach, and we also are going to co-rule with him. So these are the bowls of wrath, bowl number one, loathsome sores upon those who worship the beast, followed by bowl number two, the sea turns to blood, and then the water, fresh water, turns to blood, and men are scorched with great heat and darkness and pain that can be felt when spirits of demons gathering kingdoms to Armageddon, and then the unprecedented earthquake, and hailstones. And so the purpose of the bowls of wrath is really to target and to judge the beast. And Revelation 16 19 tells us about this in one of the, the, the seventh uh bowl. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. So Babylon the Great was remembered before God and was given the cup filled with the wine made of God's furious. Wrath. So the wrath of Yahuwah Abba was manifested through the seven bowls of wrath, and completed when the seventh wrath, seventh bowl of wrath was poured. And those who one, uh, what was destroyed that is noted here is Babylon, the great, the great city. So we need to identify this great city. Is it literally Babylon? It's not Babylon. And for us to be able to identify this city, because when people are thinking this great city, which is the target of the wrath of Yahuwah Abba, many people are thinking this Babylon, the city of Babylon could be Rome, it could be Mecca, it could be um, Babylon itself in Iraq, however, when we look at the clues presented in Revelation 17, it tells us what this city is all about. So let's go ahead and jump to Revelation 17 and the verses 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven boasts came and talked with me, saying to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So, so this time, the angel, one of the angels of the seven angels, uh, had a conversation with the apostle John, or speaks at least to the apostle John, unlike the previous our visions of the Apostle John, where he just writes down what the seven angels were doing in the bowls of wrath. Here, one of the seven angels actually speaks to the Apostle John, and he speaks about the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And so the wrath, the bowls of wrath, the judgment of Yahuwah, its purpose really is towards this great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, what is this great harlot? Is it an actual, literal, physical woman? We know it cannot be, the Bible speaking here, in symbols. We know this because the Bible tells us the great harlot who sits on many waters. And so if it sits on many waters, it's impossible literally for a physical or literal woman to sit on literal waters. you are going to sink down, right? So this is not a literal interpretation, but a symbolical one. And so what do the waters represent? We know this because we've studied this in the past. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so it's very clear, the vision in Revelation 17, it's not to be understood literally, right? It's to be understood symbolically. However, the good news is the symbols are explained to us, right? So the waters, we know, represents peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. The harlot or the woman upon which the water sits, well, what does that represent? Well, we don't have to do any guesswork because the Bible tells us what the symbols represent. When we jump to Revelation 17, verse 18, and the woman Whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So now we know what the harlot or the woman symbolizes or represents. It represents a great city. And what makes this city great? It sits on many waters. In other words, it represents or it will be in control or influences many nations. Many tongues, many people throughout the world. And so the Bible reveals to us the woman or the harlot is a great city, which will be the center of a world empire. And so there's going to be in the future some sort of world government, one world religion. And it's going to center there in this great city. The great city is mentioned many times in the book of Revelation. And it identifies to us the subject of the wrath of Yahuwah Abba. And who is or what is this great city? We read before this great city is referred to as Babylon, the great, which will become the world empire. But it also will fall because in Revelation chapter 14, we talked about the judgment against the about great Babylon. Remember, fallen, fallen is great. Babylon so it's referring to the city the great city which is also spiritually called Babylon well which is that great city that the bible speaks of revelation 11:18 and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which spiritually is called sodom and egypt where also our lord was crucified and so the great city which is identified as Babylon, here in Revelation 11, verse 8, it is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. So it's called spiritually Babylon, spiritually Sodom, spiritually Egypt. But the physical or literal city, it is the place where our Lord was crucified. And we know that place where our King Yehusha was crucified. It's none other than. Jerusalem. And so the headquarters of the world empire that is to come, it will be situated in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem in the end times will be identified spiritually. It will be called spiritually Sodom, Egypt, and Babylon. This is what we find in the holy scriptures because the great city is identified by these three names Sodom, Egypt, and Babylon. Now, why would Jerusalem be identified with Babylon, Sodom, and Egypt? Well, in a prophecy concerning the Antichrist, which we studied in our study of the book of Daniel, chapter 11, where we looked at little horn, past and future. By the way, we have that available for download. In Vimeo and YouTube, if you have time, take a look at that passage or take a look at that lesson or that episode of the BHP because we discuss Little Horn, the twofold prophecy concerning Antiochus Epiphanes and the future Antichrist. In Daniel 11, uh, verse 45, Bible says concerning the future Antichrist, he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will Help him. And so when we read Daniel 11, it speaks about the conquest of the Antichrist, about his beginnings, but it also tells us about where he's going to place his royal tents. The royal tents referred to there is his headquarters. Where will it be situated? Between the seas at the beautiful Holy Mountain. The seas referred to there is likely the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea and the Holy Mountains of course is Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And so we have the Antichrist setting up his headquarters there in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because he's going to occupy the temple. He will sit as God in the temple of God and when he presents himself as God, he will become the man of sin, the son of perdition. He is to be the one who is to oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God. This is why we're not surprised that great Babylon, identified in the book of Revelation, refers to the city of Jerusalem. And our Lord Yahusha the Christ also mentioned what, what would happen when this person, this Antichrist, will set shop, will sit in the, so, in the temple there in Jerusalem? Matthew 24, 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So all the dots are being connected. We know Jerusalem is going to be the place where the Antichrist will set up his headquarters. Now, why is that? Why do you suppose the Antichrist, of all places, would set up his headquarters in Jerusalem? Why do you think that is? Because the Antichrist will mimic and imitate the true Christ. And so it's not surprising that he's going to make his headquarters the place where the prophecies tell us will be the place of the future millennial kingdom. You see, the devil knows that the Old Testament prophecies, like Ezekiel, like Isaiah, like Zechariah, also in the book of Psalms, and numerous Old Testament prof- prophets and prophecies, like in Zechariah, Zephaniah, so many, they tell us is going to be a future eternal kingdom, the one who will sit on the throne is the king of kings, lord of lords, our king yahushua Yahusha. And he's going to make Jerusalem the headquarters of this future kingdom. And so the devil knows that because he reads his Bible. He knows Hebrew and Greek, right? He's very, he has high IQ. And so the devil knows that. And so to be able to imitate the true Messiah, he's going to, the devil is going to cause the Antichrist to occupy the temple in Jerusalem. So that he can be the anti-Mashiach or the anti-Christ. And so it makes perfect sense that this anti-Christ will occupy and make as his headquarters Jerusalem herself. And so that's what the great city of Babylon refers to. Now let's go ahead and make more connections because maybe there may be some of those who may be thinking Babylon cannot refer. To Jerusalem so let's keep reading Revelation 17 1 down to 2 we know that the woman is called a harlot a great harlot and one of the reasons why in this analogy this work of symbolism by the apostle John the reason why he calls her calls Jerusalem a great harlot is because verse 2 with whom the kings of the earth uh, committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so the Bible tells us this woman, which is a city, a great city that will influence the whole world. It's called a harlot and we're not, and throughout scripture, there are many instances where Jerusalem is referred to as a harlot. For example, in Isaiah 121, how the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderer. So it's not anything new that Jerusalem is called a harlot, Ezekiel 16. Again, the word of Yahuwah came to me saying, son of man, caused Jerusalem to know her abomination. So we know in history, in prophecy, Jerusalem is often called a harlot. And so the Bible tells us in Revelation, there is the judgment of the great hearted. There's a judgment that is to take place upon Jerusalem. Why? Because of her fornication. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and Jerusalem became drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, when the Bible mentions in Revelation the word fornication, and when you refer to prophecy concerning fornication... And adultery and sexual immorality, oftentimes, like the majority of the times, it's not not referring to the sexual act. It's referring instead to something else. What is that? In Hosea 3 verse 1, then Yahuwah said to me, go again, love a woman who was loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Just like the love of Yahuwah for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. And so when prophecy, including Revelation, speaks of sexual immorality, like adultery or fornication, often it's referring to idolatry because Yahuwah likens himself to be the spouse of his people, right? Because of the covenant. And so the covenant agreement between Yahuwah and Israel it's likened to a covenant between to, uh, to spouse, to husband and wife. Yehuah would be the husband. Israel would be the spouse or the wife. We know that throughout scripture, Yahuwah Ye- portrays his people, Israel, as his spouse. And so adultery or fornication of Jerusalem, the equivalent of that is what we call idolatry. And so when you worship pagan gods or adopt the customs of pagan gods. It is equivalent to spiritual fornication or spiritual adultery. And so in Ezekiel 16, 35 to 36, what does Yehuah call Israel? Or what does Yehuah call Jerusalem? Now then, O harlot, uh, hear the word of Yahuwah, Thus says the Lord Yahuwah, because your filthiness was poured out And your nakedness uncovered in your harlotry with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, and because of the blood of your children, which you gave to them. And so, what we have is Jerusalem is going to be guilty of adultery. Not only that, they're going to cause other nations, which will be influenced by Jerusalem to also be guilty of fornication. In other words, Jerusalem would be known for its idolatry. And the reason why is because it's going to promote the worship of the Antichrist, which would be the most abominable of desolations. Hence, Yahuwah is going to judge that great city. Now, what further proofs? That the great city, Babylon, is in fact referring to Jerusalem in the end times. Let's keep reading Revelation 17. Let's read verse 3 now. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, uh, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So here we have the woman, which is the great city, and it is sitting on a scarlet beast. We know what this beast is or who this beast is. This scarlet beast is described as having seven heads and ten horns. We discussed this before. It's referring to the Antichrist. In Revelation 13, verse 1, it mentions the beast with seven heads and ten horns. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means in our study later on. But what we know is this, because the city is sitting upon the Antichrist or the beast, it would mean that Jerusalem would be empowered by the beast, and the beast would be empowered by the devil, because the devil is the one who supports the beast, giving him his powers and authority. And so the beast, in turn, will support and use Jerusalem as his headquarters. In that sense, we have the great city sitting on that scarlet beast. Now, why are we sure it's referring to Jerusalem? Revelation 17 and the verses 4. The woman, that's the city, right, was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand A golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. This specified list of specifiers about the great city, about the harlot, tells us a lot. And it tells us it's referring to Jerusalem. What's the proof? Well, look at the description. It mentions that Jerusalem or the woman, the great city, was arrayed in purple and Scarlet. Is there significance to these colors? There's great significance because according to the book of Exodus, there's certain color patterns and certain color combinations that represent or symbolize the work of the tabernacle in Jerusalem or the work of the temple in Jerusalem. Exodus 26 in the verses 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle With 10 curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. And so when the instruction was given to construct the tabernacle, which we know would eventually become the temple, there were instructions concerning the curtains. They were to be of certain colors what were the three colors selected? It was blue, purple, and scarlet. This pattern of blue, purple, and scarlet is found not just in Exodus chapter 26. Throughout the Old Testament, this pattern of blue, purple, and scarlet, they're found describing not just the tabernacle curtains, but also the temple veil, various offerings, worship attire, the high priest's girdle, the high priest's ephod, and the high priest's breastplate. And when you look at that, what does that represent? Worship in the temple in Jerusalem. And so when you look at the pattern of blue, purple, and scarlet, it represents tabernacle worship, offering to Yahuwah, which we know centers around Jerusalem. So we know the woman, the great city, Is being prepared for temple worship and it's being associated with temple worship. And so when we look at Revelation 17, verse 4, which includes the specifiers that we mentioned, it mentions purple and scarlet. Do you notice a color that's missing? Yeah, it's missing blue (laughs) because in the tabernacle colors, the high priest colors, what we have is the pattern blue purple and scarlet. And so they have purple, they have scarlet, but what's missing is the color blue. Why would that be? Well, what is the significance of the color blue? Numbers 15, 38 to 40, speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners and you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of Yahuwah and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy for your God. So what does the blue represent? It represents that instead of pursuing your own harlotry or whatever you want to do, in your own eyes, the Bible tells us the color blue represents commitment and loyalty to the commandments of Yahuwah, specifically the Ten Commandments. Not only to be loyal to the Ten Commandments, not only to, to remember them, but also to obey the Ten Commandments. So we know the color blue can represent the Ten Commandments, the proclaiming and the obeying of the Ten Commandments. What also uh, does the color blue represent? Numbers for five to six. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. What's the ark of the testimony? What is that? That's the ark of the covenant, right? And in verse six it says, then they shall put on it a covering of badger skins. And spread over that a cloth entirely of blue. And they shall insert its whole. So the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the presence, the Shekinah glory of Yahuwah Abba is going to be manifested. Because it points to and refers to our King Yahushua. Bible tells us it is to be covered entirely with what color? Blue. So we see here. In the Old Testament, the color blue symbolizing commitment to the Ten Commandments and also representing true worship, having the presence of Yahuwah. And so the woman, the great city, is promoting not the true worship, not the true commandments, but the Antichrist in its temple. And so again, we have the association with Jerusalem. It's going to be Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But instead of promoting true worship and promoting the Ten Commandments, instead of Yahuwah's presence being manifested, it will be absent in, in that future Jerusalem because the Antichrist is going to be promoting his worship, the worship of himself in the temple. And so that tells us another big clue that the great city is referring to Uh, Jerusalem, but what's another clue? Let's go back to the specifiers in Revelation 17, uh, verse 4. It says, the woman, the city, will be adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Remember, Jerusalem would be called Sodom, Egypt, and Babylon. Because spiritually, you're going to fall. Jeremiah, the prophet, during the captivity, when Israel and Judah fell to captivity. Jeremiah was lamenting. He wrote this about Israel, about Jerusalem in 430. And when you are plundered, what will you do? So Yahushua is going to be punished. They're going to be plundered. Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint in vain, you will make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life. So the Bible tells us that when Jerusalem is plundered, it was their time of captivity because they were not living according to Yahuwah's commandments. Instead, they committed fornication and adultery because they engage in the worship of pagan deities. And so they have fallen. No longer are they considered true Jerusalem, but a fallen Jerusalem. And this is what the Bible likens them too it's and the bible says even if you clothe yourself with ornaments of gold and precious stones it will not do you any good and this is what the apostle john is describing revelation 17 verse 4 adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a golden cup and so here's another um, specifier the bible speaks of this woman having in her hand the golden cup. And what does that represent? In Jeremiah 51, again, Jeremiah is condemning Jerusalem because of their idolatry. And then he has this to say, Babylon was a golden cup in Yahuwah's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. And so when you look at the specifiers in Revelation 17 verse four, all those different colors, The gold, the cup, it all points to Jerusalem in a condition of apostasy, in a condition of fornication. And because of this, Yahuwah was going to judge her. What else proves this connection between the great city Babylon and Jerusalem? Revelation 17 and the verses 5. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So here we have a name on her forehead. Now when you think of a name on the forehead, what comes to mind? Where did all that begin? In Exodus 28, 36 to 38, make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as on a seal, holy to Yahuwah. Fasten a blue cord to it to attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead. And he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts that the Israelites consecrate, whether the gift, whether whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually, so that they will be acceptable to. Yahuwah. And so what did that name on the forehead represent? Well, there was a plate made of pure gold that was to be worn by Aaron. Now, who was Aaron? What was his duty? Aaron was the high priest. He was the one who led worship. And so he represented Yahuwah. Basically, it was kind of like a mediator. So he's representing the people and Yahuwah. And so he's orchestrating the worship, the acceptance of offerings. And so this tells us that there is something that must be on his forehead at all times, continuously. What is that? The name of Yahuwah. This is why the high priest is known for wearing the name of Yahuwah on their forehead. It identifies their loyalty to who? Yahuwah. But this harlot, this woman, who will be the world empire? Instead of giving their, their loyalty, instead of leading the people to worship Yahuwah, they will lead the people not to worship Yahuwah, but someone else. One who leads Babylon, and Babylon represents the enemy of the people of Israel. And so, instead of worshiping the true Elohim, they're going to that great city is going to cause others to worship the Antichrist instead. Bible also, in Revelation 7, 17, 5, refers to the great city, the woman, as the mother of harlots. What does that mean, that this city is called the mother of harlots? It, when you look at the scriptures, and it mentions mother of harlots, the city itself is considered a mother And the people living in the city are considered the children of the city. So a city is often described as a mother in biblical uh, history and in prophecy. For example, in Luke 23, 28 to 29, But Yahushua turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And so here we have Jerusalem being described as a mother. Daughters of Jerusalem. Jerusalem having children. Isaiah 4.4. 4. When Yahuwah has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. In Isaiah chapter 4, the prophet is actually describing events. Prior to the second advent of our king Yahushua prior to the Armageddon mentioned in Revelation, and he speaks of the filth of the daughters of Zion. So this is telling us the inhabitants of Zion, the, uh, the blood of Jerusalem from her midst and in Matthew 23, 37 to 38 oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And so in history and in prophecy, we find Jerusalem being described as a harlot, and it's also being described as a mother. And when it says mother of Harlots is basically describing that one day Jerusalem, because of the Antichrist occupying the place, is going to cause those who live there to become harlots too, because they will be led into worshiping idols and false deities instead of the true Yahuwah. And so the, uh, the city would also be called abominations. The mother of abominations of the earth. And again, this is a reference to Jerusalem in Revelation in Jeremiah 6, verse 15. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says Yahuwah. And so we have many examples of abominations being described as the deeds of the people of yahuwah like jerusalem israel judah they were all guilty of abominations and in many instances jerusalem even our king yahusha mentioned one of these abominations is to kill even the prophets right yahusha said Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to wrap my arms around you. But the prophets that were sent to you, what did you do, what did you do to them? Kill them. The, tent, the two witnesses, where will they be killed? In Jerusalem. <laughs> Many prophets have been killed in Jerusalem. And so in Revelation 17, verse 6, take a look. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Yahusha. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. This is why when you look at all these clues, including this one, the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, Yahusha himself testified. That's referring to Jerusalem, not not another city, but Jerusalem. This is why when Revelation 17, 6 included this passage, it kind of solidifies. It basically makes it unanimous that this great city Represented as a harlot is referring to Jerusalem in the end times prior to the return of our king, Yahusha. Because who's going to occupy that place? The Antichrist. And how will Jerusalem prosper to become the world empire during the end times? Revelation 17, verse 7. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So how does Jerusalem become a world empire? Because it will be chosen by the beast. The beast will carry her. And this beast is described in Revelation chapter 13 which we discussed already. And so the devil, he will carry the beast. The beast in turn will carry Jerusalem. And so the devil will use the beast as an instrument. The beast will use Jerusalem as an instrument to deceive many people to bring worship to himself instead of the true Mashiach or the true Christ. Now, what is what does the Bible tell us? What does Revelation 17 tell us about this beast something interesting in verse eight because this is written the beast which you saw and so the angel speaking to apostle john basically finished describing about the great city now he's going to describe the beast he describes the great city which is the woman now he's going to describe this antichrist and so he says the beast which you saw once was now is not and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. And so we shift now to a description of the beast. The beast was first mentioned in Revelation 11, and he would be the one to kill, remember, the two witnesses. But it didn't tell us much about the beast until Revelation 13. And now Revelation 17 is adding more detail. It's telling us about what the beast will be known for, the defining moment of the beast, which would represent basically like his title, like what he would be known for. For example, when you think of Hitler, you think of Holocaust, right? And so when you think of the beast, people are going to remember, oh, the beast. This is once the one who was once, uh, the one who was, uh, he once was, right? Now is not, and yet will come. And when you string together these tongue twister words, it kind of makes for a great enigma. What does that mean? This beast because he once was now is not and yet will come. What could that possibly mean? The beast which you saw once was now, once was now is not and will come up out of the abyss. What does that mean? Well, we talked about the beast in Revelation 13. Let's go back because there's something that we need to wrap our heads around. And it's sort of an enigma and it's a very controversial um, doctrine controversial part of the holy bible and it's really mysterious in revelation 13 three down to four and i saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast so they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast who, was able to, who is able to make war with him. And so here we have a description of the beast. He's one of the heads. And we'll talk about what the heads represent, what it means, but he's one of the heads, right? And so this beast, which will be the beast during the end times, Bible tells us he will have a mortal wound. And then he would be healed from that mortal wound. And because he would be healed, by that mortal wound, the Bible says the world will marvel and because of this will follow the beast. Perhaps initially when the beast was rising into power, he would gain the support of many people, but they would not worship him yet. Maybe just gain um, some, gain a favor. They would like to do business with the beast. They, like the message of the beast while he was growing in power. And then all of a sudden, he suffers a mortal wound, a deadly wound, and then he was healed. Now, in these last days, because of modern technology, modern medicine, modern science, I mean, it's going to take a lot to make us amazed, right? It's going to take us a lot you know, to marvel at something. And so what could this mortal wound be? And what could this deadly wound healing be? Well, whatever it is, it's going to be so great. It would define the beast. This was a defining moment for the beast. Because of this event, this beast healing from a deadly wound, because of this event, this beast is going to be worshiped. This beast is going to be Followed. And the people all over the world will say, Who is like the beast? Who was able to make war with him? And so this is not your ordinary event. This is an extraordinary event. Now, what could that be? We discussed this in one of our episodes before, and we suggested the possibility of a resurrection, right? Because it says deadly wound, mortally wounded. And so perhaps he died and then resurrects, which would make kind of sense because it would be kind of like mimicking, right? The death and resurrection of Yahusha because what makes the religion that is led by our King Yahusha unique from other religions is the fact that Yahusha died, but he resurrected, right? And so. If this beast is going to establish his own religion and bring people to worship him, then the devil knows this. And so he knows that this has to happen somehow, some way. Right. So could it be that this is referring to a resurrection? Well, let's keep reading Revelation 13, 12 to 14. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Remember, the second beast is the false prophet. This false prophet is going to convince and deceive people to worship the first beast, beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs that even he so that he even makes fire come down from heaven. And then the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And so we know some kind of miracle. It could be a resurrection, but there's nothing definite, right? So the question that uh, you can come up with is is that event, the mortally wounded beast being healed, does that refer to a resurrection? Does he actually die and then is resurrected? I mean, if he suffers a wound from like, let's say for example, he gets stabbed in the heart and then he recovers, nothing amazing about that. You see that on the movies all the time. (laughs) Then again, movies are fictional, but you see that happening in real life. People get stabbed, right? but they recover, they heal from a mortal wound. This is different though. It's the equivalent of some kind of miracle or wonder. And remember, the Bible tells us about false miracles and false wonders. It could be that there's going to be some kind of miraculous event, but then we get more clues concerning that event in Revelation chapter 17. So in Revelation 13, it tells us about a mortal wound. Revelation 17 expands on this idea that it's a resurrection. Revelation 17 verse 8 says, The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss. And then at the bottom, the beast because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. And so this seems to be suggesting the beast was once was, In other words, he had life before. Now he dies, and then he will come. And so you have like the death, and then the resurrection. And to kind of illustrate this even further, it mentions that he will come up out of the abyss. So this beast, which you saw once was, meaning he dies or meaning he once was he used to live then he's de- he's he's dead that's why he says now is not and then will come up out of the abyss he's resurrected because it, for you to come up out of the abyss you have to go into the abyss makes sense for you to come out uh, out of the abyss you need to first enter into the abyss now what does that mean to be into the abyss well in, Re- in Romans 10 6 to 7 This is what Apostle Paul says, uh, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. And so the abyss, from time to time, can be referred to as the place where the dead go. It's like Hades or the grave, the parts under the earth. There's many, many references to the lower parts of the earth. It's called Hades, right? It's called the abyss by Apostle Paul. In Acts 2, 28, in the prophecy concerning Messiah, Apostle Peter says, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, you will make me full of joy in your presence. So we know Yahushua, when he died, he went into Hades. Now, people sometimes think Hades is the lake of fire. No, Hades is the place where the souls are, ba- are, are laid, or that's where they rest. And so when one dies, they go to the grave. The grave does not mean lake of fire, okay? It means it is a place, a temporary place, where souls go to, because they cleave to the ground. It means they cleave underneath the earth in the lower parts of the earth. In Ephesians 4, 8 to 10, it says this, therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? Uh, but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And so when Yahushua, before he ascended, heaven, He descended first to the lower parts of the earth because he died. And so we have here the abyss representing the place in the lower parts of the earth where the souls of the dead go. And so what does this tell us about the beast? Well, when it says the beast which you saw once was, now is not, and comes up out of the abyss, what does that mean? It means he's resurrected from the dead right? And so this tells us that when this happens, when this resurrection happens, it's going to make the world news. CNN, CNN, Fox News, ABC, CBS, whatever. People will know about it. And so people are going to be amazed. They're going to marvel at the beast and they will decide to follow the beast. Can you imagine how many will be deceived because of this event? I mean, for the first time, because when we talk about the resurrection of our king, it happened 2,000 years ago. We don't, you know, we don't really know about it, only from the written record in, in the New Testament scriptures. And so that's how we know about it. Here, people are getting to see it. And so this could be what would con- constitute like a test of faith for many people, right? And so they're going to be convinced by the beast, the beast and they're going to end up following him, and worshiping him. But what further proves that? What also adds to the argument that the beast is going to die and be resurrected? Well, let's keep reading. Revelation 7, 17, 9 to 11. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven heels on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings five have fallen one is the uh, one is the other has yet to come has not yet come. but when he does come, he must remain for a little while. the beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. he belongs to the seven and is not and is going to his destruction. <laughs> Sounds like a riddle, doesn't it? Now you're confused. What does that mean? And so now we have a description of the seven heads. Remember the beast has seven heads. What do the heads represent? Kings. There are seven kings. And one of the seven kings is going to be the beast of the end times. And so if if, if there are seven kings, there are seven individuals who represent the beast from the very beginning up until now and so we have the seventh one right and this beast is one of the seven kings but then something interesting eleven in verse 11 the beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king but he also belongs to the seven so what is it is it seven kings or eight kings why does it say an eighth king and why does it say this eighth king belongs to the seven now you're probably confused, right? You know what this means? This tells us that this beast who once was and now is not. Bible says he becomes the eighth king. How does that happen? When he is also one of the seven. It can happen if the seventh king who once was and now is not when he dies he's resurrected and so he's still one of the seven but because he's resurrected he has a new reign right and so it's one it's one king the seventh one but he will have two reigns before he dies and after he dies and so that one king the seventh one the last one is going to die And then he's going to resurrect and then become the same king, but it will be the eighth in the sense that he will have a new reign. It will be a new type of kingship because now he's going to bring a lot of followers. He's going to take it to a different level. The enemy is going to take it to a different level. So, one king with two reigns. And so that tells us it's only possible. If there's a resurrection, because if there's no resurrection, then it would be eight kings. And that eighth king would not be among the seventh. Make sense? But if there was a resurrection, since the eighth king uh, that is mentioned there is one of the seven, then it only means there must have been a resurrection. So when you look at all those clues, it tells us. That the one who will come from the abyss is the seventh king. So he dies, is resurrected. But this brings a big problem and a big question mark, right? (laughs) Does the devil have the power to resurrect? Does he? I doubt it. I don't think the devil has the power to resurrect. Can he bring fire from heaven? Good. He has power. I mean, he has power that we don't have. Because after all, he was one of the most powerful creatures created by Yahuwah. And so he can do a lot of things, but he's not omnipotent. And I don't believe he can resurrect the dead. Then who resurrects this beast? Well, what if Yahuwah was the one? Because he's the only one. Um, Yahusha, right? Yahusha, Yahuwah, they have the power to give life. So is it possible that Yahuwah permits this beast to resurrect is that possible yeah then why would he do that why would yahuwah allow this beast or why would yahuwah even resurrect this beast and this this was really a big problem for me (laughs) i couldn't really wrap my mind around it but then the answer is staring us in right in the face all along When we read Revelation chapter 17, verse 8, right? The beast, which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his. Does it tell you? Do you see why this beast is going to be resurrected? Why? Yeah, to go to his destruction. You notice every time it mentions this beast that was and is and will be, will, will be and will come, it also mentions destruction. In Revelation 17, 9 to 11, he belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. And so who is going to resurrect this beast so that he could be what? Destroyed. Remember, Revelation 17 and 18, the purpose of that is to show us the fall the destruction of great Babylon, and the beast. That's what Revelation 17 onwards, all the way to 22, all the way to 21, is all about. 17, 18, 19, and 20 of the book of Revelation tells us about the demise, about the punishment, the condemnation, and destruction of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. And so it makes sense for them to be destroyed. Well, he has to be Resurrected, right? And this goes in line with what our King yahusha said in John 5:29, 5:28 20, to 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the grave will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So there are two kinds of resurrection: resurrection for salvation, and resurrection for condemnation. Now we know there's going to be this major. Resurrection on the great white throne judgment, but, bef- but the, the false prophet and the beast are not going to be included there. They're going to be punished in advance. Just like not everyone's going to be resurrected at the same time. This false prophet, I mean this, this beast, is going to be resurrected for the purpose of condemnation. That's why Revelation 17, 18, 19 is there. And when Yahusha returns, what would happen to this beast? Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So even before the millennial kingdom comes, the beast is going to be cast where? Into the lake of fire. So if he's not resurrected, then how can he be cast? Into the lake of fire. It was according to Yahuwah's plan all along. That even before the white throne judgment. That determines who gets to go to the lake of fire. A thousand years before that. Well, the beast and the false prophet. They're going to be the first ones uh, to go there. This is why he's resurrected. And so we need to make sure that we don't follow the beast. Because if we follow the beast. And we follow his destiny. (laughs) And we don't want that. This is why we need to know who the true Mashiach is. This is why the Bible tells us that the beast is resurrected for the purpose of destruction. This is why in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when Apostle Paul mentions the man of sin, he's also called the son of perdition. Because he is to be resurrected for the purpose of perdition or destruction. Now, so he's the seventh king. Well, how about the other kings that represent the beast? Let's go back to Revelation 17, 9 to 11. Apostle John says, five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And so here the angel is explained to Apostle John. And he tells Apostle John that there is one of the beasts that is, ex- that is here now. One is in the present, the time of Apostle John. But before that, five have fallen. What does it mean to have fallen? It means you die. The Bible speaks of fallen. It refers to their death, their demise. And so there were five iterations of this beast, five kings, and they all died already. It's in the past. But then there's one in the present. And the other has yet to come. And so who was considered the beast during the the time when Apostle John was still alive? It could be Nero, right? It could be Nero. He was a king. He's the one who started systematically persecuting the Christians. There's a good chance it's him. Of course, it doesn't tell us exactly. But we know when Apostle John, in his letter, he's making a lot of allusions to Nero. Many of the assembly's challenges was because of the Roman persecution started by Nero, okay? And so it's a possibility that when the Bible speaks of five have fallen, one is the one who is, is, or who was there as the Antichrist, the beast, during the days of the Apostle John could be Nero. Well, then who were the five before Nero who have fallen? Well, when we look at biblical history, when we look at the Bible, these five kind of pop out. Right? It was Nimrod. It was the first dictator, the first world ruler who led the Tower of Babel, right? it was the first dictator. And Nimrod, his grandfather happens to be Cush. I mean, his father happens to be Cush. And he is the father of Egypt, right? And Pharaoh, the Pharaoh who started going against the people of Israel could have been a Syrian, And Nimrod happens to be the one to build the city of Assyria, the city of Babylon. So Nimrod, we have Pharaoh. You can see how he was the king that persecuted the people of Israel. Sennacherib, remember Sennacherib, king of Tyre, king of Assyria, the one who enslaved the people of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So we have king of Assyria, king of Babylon. All that belonged to, all that were descendants of Nimrod. Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. We know what he did. You know, we have Antiochus Epiphanes. And so when you study and go back to that episode that we, we taught before, um, Little Horn, Past and Future, it talks about Antiochus Epiphanes. The prophet Daniel, he goes in great length describing Antiochus Epiphanes and how he persecutes the people of So we have five possible fulfillments of the beast kings prior to John, Nimrod, Pharaoh, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Antiochus, Epiphanes. This leads us to the Christian era, and we have who? Nimrod. So it gives us six. and There's one more who is going to come, and he's going to occupy the holy place. He's going to be uh, living and making his headquarters there in Jerusalem. He's He's going to be given power over the earth, Right? But his power, according to Revelation 17. But when he does come, right, he must remain for a little while. So five have fallen, the five. One is Nero, the other has not yet come, the future. But when he comes, it's only for a little while. How long is that little while? Bible says 42 months. Short time. Bible says when the devil was Hmm. cast to the earth. After the harpatsa, when he was cast to the earth after the harpatsa, the Bible says that's you cannot go to heaven anymore. You have no, you cannot occupy heaven anymore. You're stuck there. And so he's pouring his wrath upon the earth because he knows he only has how long of a time? Short time left. And how short? 42 months. He was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's how short. <laughs> The the reign of this beast is because when he is going to uh, occupy his throne, the judgments are going to be poured out on him, the bowls of wrath. So he's not going to be having a good time. (laughs) The Bible tells us about the demise and the perdition and the destruction of the beast. Right. So what? what happens next? What also does the apostle John describe? Revelation 17, verse 12. The 10 horns, which you saw, remember there are 10 heads and 10 horns. The 10 horns, which you saw, are 10 kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. And so this king is going to select his cabinet members, perhaps. And he's going to select 10 leaders or 10 kings. And these 10 kings will be empowered and be given authority. And what will they decide to do? Revelation 17, these are of one mind. They will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. And so when the, the, uh, the uh, antichrist, the beast will sit on his throne, And then he will select 10 who will work with him. 10 kings who will have kingdoms. These are probably world leaders. He's going to set up his empire, his worldwide empire. And he will have 10 closest aides. And they're going to wage war against who? The lamb. That is our king Yahushua. And as a part of this, there are going to be kings from the east. Remember the spirit of the frogs? The spirit of demons? They're going to bring other kings from all over the world to join forces with the Antichrist, the beast. And they're going to make war with the lamb. But of course, the king of kings and lord of lords, they're going he's going to destroy them single-handedly. But what happens to Jerusalem? Let's read Revelation 17. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw, where the heart that sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate, naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. And so these 10 kingdoms, these 10 corns, they're going to gang up on Jerusalem. They don't like Jerusalem. And so they will destroy Jerusalem. They're gonna, uh, the, the, the Antichrist will turn his back on Jerusalem. They will hate Jerusalem and make her desolate, naked eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. And this is actually going to fulfill a prophecy way back in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, if you remember, 16, 1 and 2, again, the word of Yehuah came to me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. This is why she was called the harlot, because of her abominations. She's going to make an agreement with the Antichrist or the beast. And so they become abominable in the sight of Yahuwah. And so Yahuwah is telling Ezekiel, make or cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And so this is what Ezekiel says. This is what the Bible reveals about how Jerusalem will come to know her abominations. And I will judge you as a woman who break wedlock or shed blood or judge. I will bring blood upon you in fear and jealousy. I will also give you into their hand and they will throw down. Your shrines and break down your high places. They shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry, and leave you naked and bare. And so, in the beginning, this harlot had was adorned with precious stones, remember, and gold. They also, uh, they shall also bring up an assembly against you, and they shall stone you with stones and thrust, through uh, thrust you through with their swords. They shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women and I will make you cease playing the harlot and you shall no longer hire lovers and so this is how Yahuwah describes Jerusalem in the end times like a harlot hiring lovers right Being engaged with the antichrist and the beast and so the bible says Yehudah will give them into Yehudah will give Jerusalem into their hand And they're going to be plundered. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be stripped of all their adornings, be left naked and shameful. They'll be burned with fire, just like what it says in Revelation 17, 15 to 16. This all the more proves that the the harlot, the city, is referred to here, is Jerusalem in the end times. And why would they gang up (laughs) on Jerusalem? Revelation 17, 17, for God has put it. Put into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And so when the Antichrist and the beast comes, Bible says those who were not repentant, those who hardened their hearts, eventually they will come to a point when Yahuwah will say enough is enough, just like Pharaoh When God started to harden his heart, in the same way, there will be many people, many world leaders, who because they continue to harden their hearts, Yahuwah will put into their hearts to fulfill the purpose of Yahuwah in bringing them into judgment. And so they will be of one mind. They're going to surrender their authority to the beast. So the beast will become like one world dictator one world empire and there are those who will be one with him and so what we find happening in the end times is this convergence this convergence of being united there's going to be a united kingdom which will try to imitate the united kingdom of the millennial kingdom and so you will the headquarters will be jerusalem and you have one false messiah who is going to be the king, the false king. And so he's going to bring all this unity. He's going to be leading it. And this reminds us of Genesis 11 being kind of played out again. In 11, 104, we're almost done. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech, remember? And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that so they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so here we have the act of rebellion against Yahuwah. Yahuwah, after the flood, he tells the people, go and scatter. Have dominion over the earth so that people all over will begin to worship Yahuwah. But instead of being interested in what Yahuwah wants, they're only thinking about themselves. Instead of spreading, what did he want to do? Build a tower, build a great city to make a name for themselves. And so they wanted to live their life without thinking about Yahuwah. They want to make their life. Independent of Yahuwah. They want complete autonomy. And that's really the origin of sin. When people want autonomy, they want to be independent from Yahuwah. Instead of so they want to build a tower and they could do that, they can do many great things because they're going to be united. There's like a united one world dictator. The one leading is Nimrod. And so when this is what is being done, instead of scattering Yahuwah sees that they're building a tower because they think by doing so, they can avoid the wrath of God. They can no longer be affected by a future flood. So they build a tower towards heaven. They build a great city and make a name for themselves. And so when they rebel against Yahuwah, what does Yahuwah do? Five to seven. But Yahuwah came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they shall speak the same language. After this, nothing shall set Nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Tom, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. So what does Yahuwah do? So that they would no longer be united or of one mind and one purpose. Bible says Yahuwah confuses their language. So that they would no longer have one purpose and one mind. And so they would be caused to spread out. And that's the origin of languages. And so what we find is this tower and building a great city for themselves and being united to rebel against God it's going to happen again. There's a future tower of babel that has been built that will be built in Jerusalem. There is a future Nimrod it's the antichrist. And today we're seeing the signs towards that trend of convergence right I mean today you have like the one world government the one world religion one currency one purpose right and you know what their purpose is Do you think when people converge like for example today there are many talks about economism the economical movement or all religions are going to be one do you think that's what Jehovah wants all religions to be one Is that what the father wants? No, he wants his ways to be set apart, to be different. It's supposed to be followed by everyone. It's not everyone kind of compromising the truth and then mixing, mixing all these different religions into one hybrid, one religion of the world, mixing all these false religions. That's not what Jehovah wants. It would make his religion impure. It has to be pure. It has to be set apart. But the movement nowadays is towards that one world religion, one world government. And back in 2022, like in November, I think, there was a multi-faith event led by the United Nations, a conference in Egypt, of all places. Went to Egypt, and it's about climate, being friendly to the climate, uh, to the world. And so we, the purpose of these religious leaders is to meet together. And when they met together for the purpose of protecting and preserving Earth's climate, you know what they came up with? Yeah, they came up with new commandments, right? There's a climate activist holding the new green. They call it the new green 10 commandments because when they met there, what happened? When they, all these different religions, all these different religious leaders, when they met there, what did they, what did they do together? In Sinai, Egypt, this is the report, uh, leaders of various religions and religious organizations gathered to repent of their alleged climate sins. <laughs> and so they repented, which is good, but they repented on climate sins, not sins against who? Yahweh, And ushering what they described as a new universal Ten Commandments, gathered in Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, uh, sheikh, and cities around the world, amid the United Nations COP27 climate change summit in Egypt, representatives of major Christian and Islamic denominations join forces with all manner of pagans and heathens to unveil what they hope will be the new and improved moral code of the future. And so, the moral code of the Ten Commandments would be replaced by the moral code of this conglomeration of different faiths including pagans and heathens and so they come up with new commandments and this is the new commandments uh, the new the new 10 commandments were listed as we are stewards of this world creation manifests divinity everything in life is interconnected do no harm look out for tomorrow rise above ego for our world change our inner climate Repent and return, every action matters, use mind, open heart. And so when you look at it, it, sounds nice, doesn't it? But when you look at the fundamental idea behind these New Ten Commandments, it speaks of humanism, doesn't it? Instead of focusing, instead of mentioning Yahuwah, it doesn't even mention worshiping God. In fact, its purpose really is to worship man. In the message that we find in these commandments is basically, we can save the world. We don't need God. We're fine on our own. So God, please leave us alone. We can manage earth all by ourselves. And many people today, that's their thinking. They don't need God. They don't need a Bible because they're good on their own. As human beings, we can solve our own problems. We can save the world. And if you think and believe that, then there would be no need for a savior. And you're going to replace the savior. Because you yourself, as human beings working together, you are the savior. And so that's where the economical movement is headed towards. This one world religion that will be led by one dictator, the Antichrist, is going to share the same message. And guess what? the people are going to love it. They're going to love it. Because it will bring everyone together. It will bring all religions together. A universal Ten Commandments that is encompassing all the different faiths. But is that what Jehovah wants? Remember the Bible, our King Jehovah says, I came here to divide. In other words, he does not want to unite different versions of different kinds of religions into one, no. He wants to promote Yahuwah's religion. That's why Yahusha came. Not to combine different religions, but to promote the religion of Yahuwah. But in this economical movement, he's gonna have many supporters. This is why when the two witnesses are going to preach about the 10 commandments and about Yahusha and about being loyal to Yahuwah, the people are gonna hate them. Because what they want to hear is the message from the Antichrist. Because it's unifying, bringing people together, right? I'm not saying it's wrong for us to be together, but it doesn't mean that we can take parts of one religion, combine it to create a hybrid religion, and call that the religion that leads to God. No. The purpose of religion is for us to return to Yahuwah. But the humanism movement doesn't teach that at all. It says we don't need Yahuwah because we're good on our own. We can survive on our own. We don't need a Savior. The Bible says we do need a Savior because of the problem of sin. And so what our task is right now is to spread the message about Yahusha, telling people about Yahusha everywhere. Go into all the world and preach the good news. That's what we need to do. You don't preach a new Ten Commandments. We preach the Ten Commandments. We preach the good news, which is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Yahushua. Because by means of that, we can be saved. He's the Savior. The good good news is that there is a Savior. And we need to trust in our Savior instead of trusting in ourselves to save ourselves. That's what we need to spread. And Yahushua says, in this final passage of our studies, Yahushua came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of... The age, even up to the very last moment, this is what we need to do. Yahushua says he was given authority in heaven and on earth. And what does he want us to do based on his authority? He wants us to create disciples. Not to create a religion of the world, but to make disciples of our King Yahushua. So that the world can see the light. And see the way by which we can be saved, which is through our king, Yahusha. This is what we need to do. We need to go out there. That's what our king says. Go out there. Go and make disciples of all nations. Don't build your city, the city of man. Don't build a tower. Go out there and spread the gospel message. That is our lesson. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Almighty and merciful Abba, Yahuwah Almighty, thank you so much for blessing each and every one of us, giving us your message of hope because we know as the world continues to fall apart, we have a Savior that you appointed. Help us to look up to him, the Messiah, your only beloved son, Yahushua, our King. We place our hope and trust in you We know the devil has come to deceive. Help us then to be diligent in our devotion to you. May we always give loyalty to you and place you as our topmost priority. We need more people to return to you. This is your will. You want many to receive salvation. So while we still have life, Help us to make disciples of all people, teaching them your commands, the commandments of our Father, Yahuwah. Yahuwah Abba, bless your people throughout the world as we boldly carry out this message. It may not be a popular one. It may not be what the people are itching to hear. But Father, it is your religion. It is what we proclaim. Help us to be your mouthpieces. Help us to speak of you, to speak of your Son, that many can be embraced by salvation. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. You have healed your people who may be afflicted with disease. For we ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen.